Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Brandon Mills, who is the president of Forefront Ventures, but specifically the president of Forefront Ventures, Massachusetts, in Illinois. I want to make sure I emphasize that correctly. Thank you. You got me. Thanks, Len. (laughs) Great great to be here. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I started digging into your content a little bit more and... and, uh, Nobody really talks about like your personal background. I'm really curious about that. That that is a, more of an interest, and we'll get into you know the business uh, uh, of forefront and and all the other things. But uh, let's start from where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, born and raised in San Diego, Southern California native. Um, never got too too far from home, uh, at least not for a long period of time. So I, I grew up in in North County, San Diego. I went to undergrad at UCSD in La Jolla and a bunch of years living at the beach and surfing down there. And then um, after a couple years in management consulting, I started my first tech company and our lead investors happened to be based in Los Angeles. And so I guess that was 2006, 2007, I moved to LA and uh, called LA home for about the last 15, 16 years. And just recently and during the pandemic moved down to Orange County. So not, not too far South, but yeah, so Southern California through and through it. So, and then your family, uh, your, were your parents together? Do you have siblings? Yeah, parents together. I have a younger brother who's uh, smarter and more handsome and successful than me. Uh, mechanical engineer, just whip, whip smart dude and a good, good close friend. 
parents still together, still live in North County, San Diego, where I grew up. So family's all intact and really close. So when you were growing up, uh, you know, I'm imagining you see a beach community, you're surfing and all that stuff. When you were going to school, what, what did you want to do? <laughs> that changed a lot. So San Diego's a, how much time have you spent in San Diego? Any? A little? Oh yeah, I got, yeah. Well, our, so my, outside of this, my, my, my business endo kind of help, uh, our partners, Illumina. So Illumina is based in San Diego. Uh, so I, I've been to San Diego many, many times. Okay, cool. So, you know, it's it's a, a little bit slower paced than LA. It's definitely more of a military town and has a lot more of a kind of laid back surf culture. Um, just a just a downshift from fourth to third, uh, going from north to south. And I I grew up in, in North County, which is kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's a surf community. It's a beach community. So, I you know, my, my childhood, I spent you know, before high school driving and surfing a couple days a week and then showing up in AP calculus 40 minutes late in Sandy. So that, that was, that was kind of my upbringing. My parents, my dad's a surfer. My parents grew up in Orange County at the beach. So it was a a pretty chill laid back lifestyle. Uh, went to UCSD, which was, um, is a, an amazing educational institution, but is also a very different college than a lot of people's college experience. So UCSD was really fun but at the same time it's it's not a party school it's not a football school it's just it's a lot of very regimented education and then a bunch of kind of hippie stonery kids looking to blow off steam and so i would say college is kind of where um i was more surrounded by cannabis for the first time ucsd is a big cannabis and and mushrooms and other lightweight recreational drug school um, I went, I happened to go to engineering school there. So I was in the structural engineering program at UCSD, which is like taking this already very intellectual nerdy experience and then just amplifying it. And so you end up with a smaller group of even more intelligent, introverted peers. And, uh, it turns out that most of them smoke weed. And so it was a, it was a very, uh, like al- alcohol is not nearly as prevalent on UCSD's campus as cannabis was, at least among my peer group. And so I like, unlike my wife who went to ASU, I think our, our Friday nights were very different. And so cannabis was uh, a big part of my college experience. But but you, you went to engineering school. So, you know, do you have a, my, my dad was an engineer and he, a very, very structured. So I have ADD and I'm that we did not get along at all because He's very, very structured and regimented on everything. Like when we go on vacation, my dad gets up before everybody. He goes to breakfast. He would set up the chairs, the the lounge chairs at the beach. Uh, Now we get up, we go to breakfast. He's already sitting there. He's got a drink. It's it's noon. It's time for lunch. He leaves. (laughs) He goes to lunch. He gets lunch. Then it's time for his nap. And it's like my life was like that. And we we couldn't uh, get along because he didn't understand me. I didn't understand him. But you went to engineering school. So did you have uh, any desire to be an engineer or like what was the impetus for that? I certainly thought I did at the time. I think the the impetus was really so my dad, my parents are are both um, my my dad's a carpenter. My mom's an, an accountant, a tax accountant. So like very blue collar, hardworking, uh, and entrepreneurial people. Both of them ran their own businesses for periods of time. Um, and my dad as a carpenter always, 
I know just channeling him, I know he, what his thought process was, which was, I want him to be able to do something where he has more earning power or more flexibility or more, more command on a job site than me. And so the engineer on, on a job site is a structural engineer, a civil engineer, depending on what you're working on. And so that's kind of like, he, he saw that as something that was to aspire to. And so in turn, I saw that as something to aspire to. Um, and so I just, you know, I, I picked that out of a hat as a 16 year old kid, when you're looking at majors for college and I was a year young. So I, I think I started college when I was 17. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought I'd get into an engineering program because it was kind of uh, UCSD. It was a separate application than just getting into the school. You had to also get into the engineering school and I'd figure it out from there. And two and a half years in, I was like, I don't, I don't know that this is what I want to do. This is hard. It's definitely challenging. I'm enjoying some of these concepts and classes, but I just don't picture myself doing this. And I went through a prolonged period of just struggling to figure out what, what I was going to parlay two and a half years of engineering education into. Um, and that's when I learned, like, I kind of fell in love with business and I, I picked up a minor, which you couldn't do at UCSD unless you petitioned, because as an engineering student, you had to take so many classes to graduate that you were over the cap of the number of units you could take. And they were like, why are you petitioning to take a to, you know, are you glutton for punishment? You want to do more than is required? And I said, no, I want to pivot. I got to do something else. And I did picking up a minor and learning a new subject matter was what I saw as a path out. So I ended up uh, minoring in management science, which was basically applied economics. And I fell in love with business and with consumer behavior and microeconomics. And um, I, I never went on to go to grad school to further the studies beyond that minor. But everything I've done since then has been rooted in a love for just consumers and business and product and those kinds of things. Yeah, it's interesting how we find that path because uh, I had a similar story. I, I went to physical therapy school because my parents said, I want to be in, in music. And my parents like, I'm not going to make any money in music. You know, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, there was a guy named Rick Rubin and he does something that, and he makes money in music. Like, does he play an instrument? No. Does he have, read music? No. Well, what does he do? I'm like, well, he just says, he listens to stuff, says, that's good. That's not that good. I can do that because I listen <laughs> to music all the time. Like, no. Uh, we, and they, they actually had a, a shrink come in and, and they had this whole intervention to make me go to physical therapy school. Uh, no regrets because it led me to where I am now. So I, I have a basic knowledge of anatomy and physiology, but very, very similar. It kind of took a, a, a detour from there, but I still use yeah. some of those practices. Um, so in doing, you know, being an entrepreneur, how did you get into cannabis? And I, I know you mentioned consumption of cannabis, but what was, how did you actually get into the business of cannabis? A long and windy road. Um, no, I mean, like, non-professionally by selling it to my friends in college professionally um uh, yeah it's a funny story and i think one thing that i learned through just in the general love for business and problem solving and all the things that come along with entrepreneurship was that i don't and i still don't know the answer to this i don't know that it matters to me what i'm building as it matters to me that i have an opportunity to build it and the people that i'm building it with and so over the first phase of my career. I, I built a handful of companies in a bunch of different spaces, none of which I was necessarily particularly passionate about, but all of which I came to understand really well, understood our customers, their needs, and built products to that end. And so it was kind of a series of started out in tech, um, built a company in advertising technology, learned a lot about 
how ad agencies work, how brands work, how you measure attention uh, and performance and digital media and return on those investments. Um, and then parlayed that into the next thing, which was only peripherally related, which was mobile local marketing platform using apps and geofencing. And then parlayed that one into one that was a date, you know, a data play, which was more big data and, and software as a service. And, and none of them were like, I wasn't necessarily building on a platform from the last one. I was building on a knowledge base and general understanding of business, but not necessarily building something in the same sector time after time. And so fast forward like 10 years and I'm working with a good friend of mine, Ray Landgraf, who had been working on this concept of Island, which his vision at the time was, I want to build a package pre-roll company. It's going to be the first package pre-roll in California. Um, it's going to be something that's maybe not super innovative or novel uh, in today's standards. But at the time, most pre-rolls were sold in a Ziploc bag with like an Avery label on the front of them. And, and most of them, as we all know, were made from shake and floor sweepings in the back of a, of a, of a dispensary. And so <clears throat> he had showed me these little prototypes of these little book full boxes that he was making that were kind of this Nat Sherman experience. And he had this really cool vision for something that I thought was a unique product. And I really liked the brand Island. I liked the clean aesthetic. I liked the target customer that, cause I felt like I was one of them. And and so as I was exploring what I wanted to do next in my career, I was trying to recruit Ray to come to another tech company with me. And he, he was like, look, I, I think this cannabis thing is going to be a once in a lifetime, once in a lifetime opportunity to participate in a chapter of a, a drug coming out of prohibition and into mainstream use. And we should take a hard look at this. This could be something really interesting. And it was, it was never about we should raise money and see if we can, you know, build something big and valuable and flip it. It was always something. It was for us, it was always about building it within this entrepreneurial white space that isn't going to exist for long. And pretty soon there will be products in all of these categories and brands targeting all these audiences. And it's going to be very, very competitive and cost a lot of money to get into the space and even try to build something. And so um, that was 2016, uh, I guess 2015 and 16. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do cannabis professionally. Um, I, I still have a love for the plant. Um, I, I, I don't use it nearly as, as often as I have in my past, but um, I just couldn't, as an entrepreneur, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go build something from scratch. And it's, you know, there's so many different places in tech that I'd thought about diving back in. And those places are largely filled with very intelligent, very well capitalized competitors. And so, and, and with, you know, being an entrepreneur, one thing that you learn is like, you only get so many at bats, every one of these ideas, concepts, the second that you raise outside capital, you're committing to whatever it takes to return capital to investors and, and close that chapter. And so that could be one year, it could be five years, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years. Um, and so it took me a long time to come to the like resolution that this was a chapter that I was willing to take on. And, um, Ultimately, like California has proven itself to be, and, and Island was founded and launched in California, has proven itself to be very challenging. And there, there have been a number of times over that journey where I've said to myself, like, shit, man, tech, tech looks rosy right now. This, this was a, this wasn't the clear. You mean it's not the green yeah. rush that everybody said, oh my God, you're going to make Yeah. It. And I didn't care about the, the green rush from a capital perspective. I just, I wanted an opportunity to go build something. And I think one thing I didn't realize was like, what I wanted to do was drive a race car. And what I didn't know I was going to have to do was get a PhD in, in like 
in assembling the race car and laying the, the road and building a racetrack and the stands in the stadium in order to participate in the race. And so it's been a journey, but um, a rewarding one. So I think I skipped, I, I remember reading that you worked for a DB company. Is that I where did. you were? Is that where you picked up like the, uh, some of the marketing uh, and the, uh, some of the uh, data marketing? Yeah, DNB was, yeah, DNB was a global data play. Um, and I worked there. I started out um, with a kind of a management group that took a division of DNB private. So private equity backed, bought a division of DNB. It was called their self-awareness solutions division. And it was basically their small business division. So focused on the tail of small to medium businesses globally. And we, we bought it. We took it private. We operated it as a as a turnaround for a handful of years, and then we ended up selling it back to DNB, our former parent company. And so I got a, a few different flavors through that chapter. I got I got to run a private equity back company or be a part of an executive team operating a private equity back company, which was a, ha, has a different return profile, expectation, risk tolerance, all of these things versus the venture backed startups I had done in my past. Um, number two, I got to operate a big profitable company in a private environment, a private operating environment, which was fun. And then when we sold it back to DNB, I got to see how my life changed going from, you know, private to public and all of a sudden chasing quarterly earnings again and participating in, in quarterly reporting. And, um, and we had a year lockup at DNB where Ray and I were trying to figure out what to do next. And so that was, that was the time that we really focused on Island and we're excited to, to do something small and private again. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I had a similar journey. I worked for a DMB company spinoff called Cognizant Technology Solutions. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah. I was director of strategic alliances. It was the same thing. And I, I mean, you know, stock wise, it did fairly well, but uh, it was a it was an interesting. Also, similarity on the journey, like when you reach a certain milestone that you set for yourself, there is an excitement for a minute, at least for me. But the journey of getting there is where. I have all the fun, all the experience. So now that I got there, I'm like, all right, great. What's next kind of thing. And I'm building that. I think that's, that's the unique thing about being an entrepreneur because you're always, you're enjoying the journey and the, the getting there is just like a minute from, at least for me. It's a, yeah, it's a blip on the radar when you look back and the thing, I mean, I keep going back to this and I thought about this a lot. The thing that I just, I really enjoy being at the bottom of a learning curve. And cannabis has provided no, no shortage of that for any of us. Um, I also, I, I have a really hard time when I can see the finish line. Like it's when it's a known path and it's linear and I can predict it. And I, I pretty much know what's going to happen quarter after quarter, year after year. It gets way less interesting to me. And for what, for whatever, like whatever weird course, personality quirk that represents, cannabis has proven to be the perfect place to operate because you can never really see around the corner. And 100%. Every one of these little micro chapters that we're all writing together here has been completely different than the previous one. And I, I look, I've, I've talked to friends that, you know, that work in incredible firms and finance in New York and talk about the things that they've accomplished over their careers. And it's like, I, I feel like those are really impressive. No, 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 uh, no dissing, but in cannabis is like a, a PhD in business and an MBA and 13 years in any other field for the most part. Um, at least this last, the last few years has been. Well, I, I tell people I, I used to have hair when I started cannabis and it just, <laughs> I know, I've got, yeah, I've got some grace. My wife points that out. We, uh, we started in California too, which has been a super challenging environment. Like if we were, 
if we were a, a division of an MSO or we were one of the MSOs that started out as an SSO or, or, you know, only had a couple states, like if you took forefront and you just carved it into Massachusetts and Illinois, it, it's a, the, the markets that I'm responsible for, it's a pretty well-oiled machine and we're feeling pretty damn good about it. And then you look at markets like California and Washington, which represent the other half of our portfolio, and they behave completely differently. They're on their own maturation curves. Their consumer base behaves completely differently. Pricing is different. Regulatory pressure is completely different. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about this whole thing, exactly what you're talking about. But let's let's sort of take a step back from Island and how how do Forefront Ventures come about? Yeah, so um, Forefront's a, a public MSO that's um, been around for a number of years. Um, it started in Washington by our CEO, Leo, and there were a number of mergers that happened over a short period of time that resulted in what Forefront is today, which is a multi-state operator with operations in California, Washington, Massachusetts, Illinois, and Michigan. And Island was a California-based non-vertical brand and manufacturer. That was our vision was we wanted to be a CPG company in the cannabis space and we wanted to do it in California, which was the largest consumer market in the in the world at the time. After five years of banging our heads against the wall, dealing with supply chain fluctuations and pricing and labor shortages and COVID and everything else, we said, look, cannabis is hard enough. Private, small private cannabis with no access to capital is a whole different layer. And then doing that in a state like California is the, you know, the triple Lindy. Um, it would be awesome to be a part of something a little bit bigger, a little more stable with a healthier balance sheet and maybe some more assets to play with. And so we started to think about, is there a better place for Island where we can actually return capital to investors, provide a better return profile and actually give ourselves an opportunity to go grow instead of being in constant survival mode. And so through that lens, Ray and I and our, our board and a bunch of our executives, like we started to look at what, what other operators would make sense to for for a partnership or a marriage and we we went through the entire gamut of should we look at another big california operator should we look at someone in california with retail so we can guarantee throughput of the product that's coming off of our farms should we look at another big single state operator so we can at least have stability in two markets um, and be able to leverage the fact that one of them is more stable than the other at any given time because that's just the nature of the beast apparently and um Ultimately, I think one of the most attractive things was, could we be with someone bigger? And, you know, when you talk bigger, um, there's, all, there's only a couple dozen MSOs, right? So we've, everyone's talked to everyone at some point. And one thing you realize in those conversations is the DNA and the culture of every MSO is, is so different. Um, it's no different than the DNA of any tech companies we've looked at with other mergers in our past. But in cannabis specifically, you kind of bifurcate or trifurcate into like, Groups that are financiers that came to the table to package assets, and it was clearly a green rush play, and that's great because that's what their that's what they and their operating teams and their investors signed up for, and that was part of the core strategy. Or it was, you know, cannabis enthusiasts who built something for their own reasons within the market that made that they were based in at the time, or or several markets that made sense to portfolio theory at the time. Or it was real operating groups who were entrepreneurs who had operational chops from other businesses or from cannabis that were here to build something real with real value. And that last group was what really appealed to Ray and I, and it proved to be the hardest to find. And fast forward, uh, through a mutual board member, we were introduced to the executive team at Forefront. 
and got to know Leo and Carl and Andrew and the executive team here and just fell in love with the group. I mean, it was, it was a really, really solid fit from the first conversations for a million reasons. One of which was we felt like they were true operators that were here to build something for the long term. two of which they were building a real company culture and they cared about their employees and, and the importance of the people. Um, and then three, they had made investments in California that we didn't think were on a standalone basis were poised for success and vice versa. We had assets in California that on a standalone basis needed a little bit more support. And so based on our mutual investments in California, it made a lot of sense to push, push the two things together. So what, what's the acquisition strategy uh, for a fund? Are you, are you looking to grow through acquisition as well? So yes and no. Um, and I think it depends on the market. So here are two stark examples. California um, is an unstable market right now, in everyone's opinion. And the only way outside of the few transactions that we've done, including Island and the Bloom acquisition, the only way that we would really... Uh, look at anything in California as if it was not burning cash, immediately accretive, and made sense from a price standpoint and didn't represent a lot of either operational risk or capital risk. And trying to check all those boxes is like trying to find a needle in a haystack, as you can but, imagine. Well, you guys, you guys, if I remember, and I could be wrong, but you guys invested in pure ratios too, right? We did, it's correct. My, my buddy, Chad. Yes. Yeah. So CBD and direct to consumer, both, both areas that we, we like, and that business is stable. Um, in, in the world that we live in today where there's, you know, capital is scarce, it's hard to invest to grow those direct to consumer channels, unless you have a really, really stable proven, uh, funnel. And that's something that we're working on improving, but yes, we, we definitely do have, have that business as well. But other than that, I mean, California is a tough go. We, we, We've oscillated on whether or not we'd want to own retail in California. We've seen a handful of other great brands um, for sale in California. And it's just really hard to justify the risk and the distraction when the core of what we have in California, we really believe in and we see a path to kind of operational stability around and the ability to operate that business, even grow that business with a path to profitability within our California P&L and ride this market out until hopefully we get to a place where things are more stable and more mature and we can all go back and invest in the business. I don't see a scenario, at least in the immediate term, where we need to exit California like so many other MSOs have announced recently. Um, and, and we, I mean, we've spent a long time building brands and products and infrastructure in California to exit. It isn't just let's step away for a moment and we'll return when things are pretty. Um, there's real cost to doing that. There's there's facilities, there's leases, there's equipment, there's brands that have shelf space that we've worked so hard to garner. So it's not it's not quite a step away and come back just as easy as that scenario for us. But that's yeah. California. In Illinois, as the the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, our our two stores in Illinois are, are doing fantastic right now. We've got a, a grow in Elk Grove Village that's um, that's great for powering those two stores on a small wholesale channel. But we we've um, we've been working on a much bigger facility in Matson, Illinois, um, that's going to power the future of forefront in that state. And that facility could very easily power, you know, a full 10 store footprint plus a massive wholesale channel. And that's a state that we're actively looking to invest in both in acquiring, uh, retail licenses and then in tying up real estate to put those retail licenses into. Yeah. 
I, I think you started answering this already before I even asked the question, but I'm just curious because I talked to a lot of MSOs too, and I talked to them in this whole thing of, well, how do you maintain consistency? And sort of paint the right picture about, you know, you have the suits coming in and then you have the operators, you have completely different uh, types of people in this industry. And you can see when I'm asking the quote unquote suits about, oh yeah, you know, uh, SOPs and all that stuff. But we know on the ground that there's a difference between maintaining consistency until there's, you know, lift of uh, uh, prohibition. Every state operates in its own way. There is no consistency. It's very hard to control. So because you mentioned, you know, Illinois difference, are there common challenges that exist across different states or are they really specifically unique to each state? And if so, like, what would they be? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and there are definitely both. I mean, it takes, in order to just operate in multiple states and deal with the fact that the packaging requirements are different, the testing standards are different. Um, there's so many different uh, requirements and governing bodies that the cost of compliance is high. Forget taxes, forget local taxes, forget the cannabis real estate markup that we pay on the leases on all of our buildings. Just the the cost to understand every market and comply with all the requirements is high. So it makes it makes a lot of sense to have a centralized compliance and legal department to help you navigate those waters. The, co- the the consistency thing is a little bit easier. And I think Forefront's done a really nice job of taking the processes, SOPs, product formats, equipment, basically the, the platform that worked in a market like Washington, where they were started and where they proved to be, you know, t- top one or two in, in category market share in every category they compete in and in overall market share in Washington. Take those processes and procedures that have worked really well over five to seven years and exports the ones that make sense to the markets that they make sense for. And then lather, rinse, repeat, take the equipment that Island brought to the table through that California acquisition, like our pre-roll manufacturing equipment, some of our vape processes, some of our brands and packaging and port those to other markets. So we've, we've now launched Island in Massachusetts, now launching it in Illinois right now, and then Washington will be next. But it's sort of a, let's prove it out, scale it, find where it breaks, and then once we're comfortable that it's stable, move it to the next market. And that's that's a very different strategy. And it's a very operational-led strategy than, say, the tactics that were taken by some of the bigger LPs up in Canada, where it was, let's let's budget it, let's invest in the Ferrari of equipment and a, a facility, but not really understand what it takes to go from zero to 60. Let's start it. Let's see what, what it takes to go from 60 to 120. And it turns out that that's really hard to do, and it, it does it doesn't work. Yeah, no, I I, I agree because <clears throat> every single market's different, and even if you replicate what you've done in California in uh, in uh, Massachusetts, for instance, it's still so many nuances. The brand itself that's important to maintain the integrity of the brand, but how you get there is different in, in different states. Right, and that that was always one of our challenges at Island when we were looking at should we you know. We're not really interested in raising enough capital to go replicate operations in multiple states. It doesn't make sense for us. It's not our core competency. Should we license the brand like Lowell did successfully and, and bring our products to market in other states? And some of the challenges we had early on were we established Island in California as kind of a mid to, mid to premium tier brand. We were buying it. We were sourcing indoor flour at the time. And most of the other markets that we went to, we just couldn't get product quality to match what we had hoped for the brand. And 
if you're willing to, if you're willing to whore out the brand for the sake of whoring out the brand, that's one thing. And certain people have done that successfully. If you're not, and you're, and you're going to stick to brand standards and, and build the brand the right way, then that has implications. And so we, we chose the harder route, but ultimately I think the right route, which was to stick to our guns on what we believed in, what we wanted the brand to be and wait for the market to catch up in terms of quality. So I read somewhere that you guys have a, a blunt uh, that you, or is that, is that out? I think it was called like 1988. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That? Yeah. 1988 blunts. So those are, yeah, they're, it's a great product. Um, they're live in Washington and Massachusetts right now. And then we're just bringing them to Illinois in an uninfused version. So those are what it's, I'm just saying, I'm sorry to interrupt. It, it's just such a good idea because you know, it's blunts. You, you actually have to roll it. Like it, it's a whole process of if you can get pre-roll blunts, like real blunts, I think that's uh, that's an interesting uh, product that I haven't seen a lot of. The, yeah, mo- most of the competition in the blunt category is more in like the Canagar, like high-end, large-format novelty products. There haven't been as many on the smaller, more affordable side. So I think this one's unique. It's not, you know, it's not a traditional blunt in that it has, you know, it's rolled in tobacco leaves. It doesn't contain any nicotine, but it it does give that flavor profile and kind of that experience. And I think there's an there's an audience for that. And I I, I think those are great products. The flavor profiles are really unique. We're gonna we have them in both uh, infused and uninfused versions. So depending on what strength you're looking for, um, we've got those two. But they're yeah, they're super fun. So. Having the focus on, uh, you know, the, the, the island brand itself that, that speaks California, at least to me, that's, that's what I, that, that's what I see in the packaging. That's way that's why I think about what I'm consuming and this, uh, you know, blunts, this 1988, this hip hop sort of, uh, kind of brand, uh, brings me back to, you know, those, uh, those late eighties. Is there a focus or is that even an area of interest uh, for the therapeutic properties of the plant? Because it seems like, the the position of the company is is more recreational or adult use. Uh, is there a focus or position? Do you do you take that position on the actual you know medicinal benefits of the plant? I don't think as a company we've spent a lot of time um, focusing on at least as much time as some of us internally maybe want on the education and kind of advocacy and and medicinal side of the plant. Obviously, we operate um, retail in Illinois and Massachusetts, where we do have the medical license. So we're serving a patient group there, not not a recreational group. Right. Um, but like by and large, I think our core thesis has been around how to produce these products, maintaining quality at scale consistently, more like a CPG company vision than say a pharma company vision. And so that, that's been the, the main driver for us, not just in terms of revenue, but in terms of like what we set out to accomplish, which was to deliver high quality cannabis products at scale. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't participate more on the medical side. We definitely have, we have educational programs. We do classes. Um, we have, we have, uh, you know, patients that we, that we educate and support, but I, I say by and large, the, the focus has been on doing things at scale. And for us, the medical side of our business is such a small percentage of the business that it gets a proportionate amount of attention. Yeah. You know, there's so much noise that goes into the, in this industry and so many different new products, uh, you know, like, like the blunt products, how, how do you drown out the noise and like not jump on the next shiny new object that's, that's brought to the, the, the table? Well, uh, lack of capital is a great 
focal point. Uh, I think a lot of the, so for me, the splashes come in a couple different areas. One is the splash of an, like an actual novel new product where somebody innovated and it was something cool and unique. Um, and, and some of those are, are doing really, really well. And then the other splashes, which kind of fall into more of the noise category for me are like the celebrity product launches or, uh, celebrity endorsements of things. And for the most part, call it 80% plus the celebrity branded products, celebrity brand, celebrity endorsements haven't really panned out. They haven't panned out in California. They haven't panned out nationally. Um, and I think that's mostly because the products are just me too products. It's just slapping a, a name or a logo on something that already existed and that wasn't any better or differentiated to begin with. Yeah. If you get, if you can find a truly novel product like the blunts or, you know, edibles with fast acting formulations or minor cannabinoids, those kinds of things, things that are on the periphery of innovation. I think that's, that's the area that we're focused the most on at forefront. I think we've got a really stable base right now of, look, we understand the product categories. We know what they look like in mature markets. We know that flour is roughly half of sales. We know that pre-roll and infused pre-roll are the next biggest chunk and the highest growth right now. We know that edibles are, are a big chunk and a high growth right now. We know that vapes are very stable and a, a great product for us in, in most of our markets. And then there's a whole bunch of small categories, some of which are growing fast, some of which aren't growing fast. But we, I think we have a pretty good feel of where our core capabilities are in those categories and what we can do in each market. Mm-hmm. Now we're trying to figure out what are the opportunities to mix in new products and new brands around those. So states that are medicinal states that you're in, like uh, if, if they convert over to recreational or adult use, uh, does that affect your business in any way or you, it's just the same, the same thing, the same product going forward? It would be the same thing and the same problem. I mean, it's just a bigger total addressable market and you're going to have to have smaller dosage uh, allowances per package for an adult use. That That's really it for us. Um, I think all of our markets are adult use. So we don't really have that yeah. opportunity right now in front of us. So what initiatives uh, do you, did you implement where it really was like a, a big differentiator uh that, that really changed things uh, for you for you guys. Uh, now that you're you're acquiring all these companies and you have to you have different cultures as well. You know, as you mentioned, Bloom and Pure Ratios and Island. Are there any initiatives that would help people to say, okay, we're going to integrate into culture and we're going to do these things to make everybody sort of successful and share the pie? Yeah, we. I mean, again, it, we've had to be fairly vigilant about how these companies and brands and products are onboarded, including Island. Like it breaks my heart to say it, but we we didn't get to bring a lot of our Island team along with us in this acquisition because Forefront had a lot of these capabilities and departments and personnel already. So with each one of these acquisitions, there there were a handful of core folks that came over with different skill sets and and that rounded out the team at Forefront. And then there were the core branded products, which we basically look at and say, what fits on our platform as it is today? what requires some slight rejiggering and what's something that maybe is non-core that we just don't, don't have any interest in supporting because we don't believe we can win in that long term. Mm. So, um, I mean, it's kind of a, it's really a CPG lens of what, what does the forefront, what is the forefront platform great at and how can we take what this brand or business has and make that great through that lens? You kind of alluded to this already. 
I'm just curious when when you're going into a certain market, uh, are you are you then uh, also working with the policymakers or the uh, uh, the legislators in 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 those specific states? Because or you're acquiring licenses, you're acquiring companies that already have licenses. How how do you how do you sort of uh, I guess remove the stigma from a lot of these different places that that have people sitting in place that remember you know Nancy Reagan and your brain on drugs uh, commercials, right? Yeah, I think. Um... So yes, we are, we're acquiring businesses that have licenses. We're also acquiring licenses themselves and building them out. But it, in Illinois is a great example. As we acquire these licenses, you know, we're, we're talking to real estate owners and local mayors and, and local legislative bodies about their cannabis ordinance and what it would mean to have a cannabis business located here and what the tax implications could be and how we can employ members of the local community and how we can put uh, money back into the local community to help, you know, write, write things that were wrongs in the past or, um, or fund schools or other things that might be, might, might've been impacted by, uh, the war on drugs. Um, we're at, we actively work in every market in one way, shape or form on this. It's why we have a central compliance and policy team. It's why our general counsel, Chris Wimmer, who's based in Oakland has been, um, you know, at this for, for many, many years. And it's different in every, in every state. Some states are, you know, Illinois as a great example, Illinois is largely run by MSOs. They have collectively 80% plus market share in Illinois. Mm. Um, California is much more fragmented and across so many smaller jurisdictions that each have their own voice. So the the amount of effort that goes into each market is drastically different. Um, or it looks, it's not that it's more or less, it's just that it's different. Um, in Illinois, we're largely working in a few metropolitan areas. In California, we're spread all over the state. Yeah, I, I, I was just about to ask you why California is sort of a model of success for you guys, and then California is something that's a, that's a challenge. I, I think Illinois looks like a model of success because it was set up to look more like what a mature market would look like. It had a more appropriate number of cultivation to retail licenses. Um, it had a, a, a cap on retail licenses. It had a cap on square footage of cultivation. And it seems like from my one year of experience in that market, it seems like um, because the, the, the regulated side of the industry is, is fairly well-funded and stable that the, the unregulated black market side of the industry is um, quite a bit less to deal with than it is in California. And, you know, here in contrast, it's just, it's so fragmented that it still feels like a very, very immature market. And I think everyone, well, everyone who's competing there and that's invested a lot of money in there hopes that eventually it looks maybe more like in Illinois. I think California is a big market, so it's got a lot of opportunity to have um, a a lot of different flavors of cultivators and brands and retail um, just because of the size of the consumer population. But ultimately there have to be fewer of us you can't have thousands and thousands and thousands of tiny farms spread out all over the place you can't have a completely unregulated uh black market that's running rampant uh, causing all kinds of you know annual supply chain issues and taking legitimate product that would go to regulated retail and taking it out the back door through burner distros to new york i mean this is a full this is a full black market war that we're waging here it's a knife fight it, it, it's it's interesting because i remember the original prop uh you know uh, or 
the original licensed facilities in California, they were against Prop 19 when it was brought uh, to for, for vote. And it seems like it's coming to fruition. Everything that the you know the the original operators were were concerned about in California, it's coming to fruition because you you actually through regulations and, and lack thereof, you actually promoted the the black market. And because you create these regulations in place, and you don't have any, you don't have a budget to go after the black market, then they're going to run rampant. So, is it because California was such a mature market? And they sort of backed into regulations. And then, you know, uh, Illinois is a, a market that mostly started from scratch. You can have a little more influence over those regulations. Yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, California, think about California. You've had, you know, 100 years of people growing cannabis in the hills of Humboldt County. Those those folks don't just stop growing when you tell them that all of a sudden they need to be regulated and pay tens of thousands of dollars plus these ridiculously onerous gross tax rates. They just keep growing illegally and they do it in more and more conspicuous ways. And frankly, the ones that made it that that crossed the chasm and decided to come play in the regulated industry, once things get tough and the price of flour fluctuates below their cost of production, they don't just stop growing. They just grow it and sell it to other states. So it's yeah, it's it's a real a real problem and it's going to be a real long term challenge to to tamp down. I think the one thing that there's two there's two ways to combat it, really. There's enforcement. And then there's economics. And if the economics are such that us regulated producers uh, can produce cost effectively and can compete against the black market in terms of price, then the black market will go away, or at least it'll be a fair fight. We just don't have that today. You can't pay 40%. That's what I was going to say. Do you feel like once the cat's out of the bag, you're collecting 40%, you're collecting all these taxes. Is there even any incentive or the states say, eh, you know, you guys, we're going to lower a bunch of taxes and give you incentive. Would they even consider doing that? They would have to have a very long-term view on what the benefits of that would look like. The view that most of us in the industry have and understand, um, and, and we're waiting on regulators to catch up. So what's what's next? What's your kind of continue to grow strategy for, uh, you know, for all the different brands uh, in, in your venture? Yeah, so it's right now we're taking a look at what's working in each market and what doesn't exist in our other markets and saying, does this port? Is there an opportunity to take Island here? Is there an opportunity to take Terp Sticks or 1988 there? And basically rounding out the portfolio that we have in each market. And sometimes that requires CapEx to bring new equipment online in that market. Sometimes it requires genetics to make sure that we have the quality required to support that brand's target audience and price point in that market. But basically taking all the things that are working and plugging them into all the holes within our existing markets. That's the lowest hanging fruit. Um, the next lowest hanging fruit is investing in the markets for that we can still invest in and, and have a relatively good feel that there's ROI on. And Illinois is the shining example of that. We've got two stores. We can go up to 10. We're going to go get eight more. We've got a monster facility coming online in Matson. That's going to allow us to bring every other product category that we don't currently have in Illinois to market, which includes all those other brands. That project alone um, is worth a lot to us and is going to take a lot of our attention and capital. And so right now, Washington um, is a is a known quantity. We've got great assets. We have great brands. We have an incredible track record there. And we're going to continue to double down on, on the leadership position that we have uh, to hold on to that leadership position. California, as I mentioned, is... Um, 
is an unstable market, but we feel like we hit, we've whittled down to kind of a stable core and we're excited to weather the storm like many others. Mm-hmm. Illinois, we're going to grow. Massachusetts, we're, we're performing incredibly. Um, the, the market itself is having some challenges, but Forefront is, is growing, has healthy margins, incredibly high quality product, just really, really proud of the work that we've done in Massachusetts. And a lot of that's come through um, our acquisition of NECC. And now we're taking those learnings about NECC, the facility design, the genetics, et cetera, and figuring out how to port those to our other cultivation facilities. So we can kind of all get on one platform. And then ultimately it's about what market's next because this patchwork of, you know, we can only do so much in every market, right? Until that market's mature, we've done everything that we can within it. And then we need to look at other states or uh, other opportunities. What do you feel about product, product testing companies? Because you're moving into different states. Is there differences in, you know, how they test in Illinois versus how they test in California? Yeah, I mean, there's there's differences between the state's requirements. Like in Illinois, as an example, our our testing threshold for microbials is ten times more stringent than it is in a, in Massachusetts, right down the road. Right, uh, which is a real problem when you're trying to uh, get infused pre rolls to pass, and you're being held into a completely different stratosphere of of testing requirements than all of your other markets. So that's a challenge. Um, beyond the the market specific challenges, yeah, the labs themselves are all over the place. We've had labs that you take the same the same sample to two different labs and get drastically drastically different results. And you know, as everyone knows in California, there there were labs that you know seem to be pay to play. So the labs are a real the the challenges. The reason that labs are so critical is because in states like Illinois, it's really hard. It's hard to get product to pass labs. And so when you're doing it consistently, you're doing great. When you're not, you're not. And um, it's a real problem if you're not. In every market, for whatever reason, cannabis consumers still measure quality by and large in THC percentage, or maybe a sophisticated consumer is looking at total active cannabinoids or paying attention to some minors. But THC is the the great equalizer and it's directly related to pricing and positioning and opportunity to sell and shelf space and everything else. So if you can go to a lab down the road that gets you two points higher in THC, you're going to do it. And so the labs are incentivized to give you higher THC. All of the brands are going to the lab that will give them the highest lab results. And so it's just this challenging environment or it doesn't feel like all incentives are aligned. Let's put it that way. Is there a way to kind of change this narrative of THC being like, this is the measuring stick because it didn't work in Canada. It doesn't work here. It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, it's crazy. So when we first started at Island, one of the, one of the pillars of what we were trying to do was build a, build a product for the modern cannabis consumer. And we called, we were all of our, all of our internal um, decks and memos and um, investor materials were around this modern consumer, which included women and included older folks and included younger folks. It wasn't just the stereotypical 18 to 35 year old male. Um, And part of that vision included bringing lower potency products to market because not all of those consumers want to get slammed. And so we had a product called Island Premiums. It was actually our first product on the market. It was a filtered hemp tube. So it was like a cigarette format. And it was ground material, just like a pre-roll, but they were cylindrical and safe in shape. And they came in a 10 pack. And we were specifically looking for material that was testing like between 14 and 18% THC. That was kind of the sweet spot. And we had a handful of growers in Santa Barbara County that could get us that consistently. And 
we loved the product. It was a smooth draw. It was a clean high. Uh, it wasn't scary for a new consumer. They understood the product format because it was filtered like a cigarette. And we had an audience that loved that product. And then we had the other 95% of the market that was a bud tender that hated the fact that it looked like a cigarette. They hated the fact that it was low THC, uh, just every headwind you can imagine. And so we, we really believe that we could change consumer behavior, young, young and uh, naive of us. And seven years later, we still haven't been able to change the narrative. I think, I think the, the industry is not honest. That's why. Because I, I don't know, you just mentioned, uh, you know, you don't consume as much cannabis as you used to, but I don't think people really understand that THC has a very narrow therapeutic window. And when you're dabbing and you're, you know, consuming all right. these concentrates and all that stuff, you're actually creating this anandamide free flowing radical in your bloodstream. Your immune system is attacking that and it triggers all these genetic predispositions. I've, like over the year, I've been consuming, you know, most of my life. And over the years, I've, I've seen people you know, say, Hey, you know, I can't, I can't, I used to smoke weed all the time, but I can't consume cannabis anymore because it makes me stressed. makes me paranoid or makes me depressed. Well, it didn't, you didn't change your genetics still stay the same. What happened is something you consume triggered your epigenetic expression. And that is the amount of THC. And that's, that's why I think, you know, the, the people Nothing against butt tenders. And I, you know, it's, I respect and appreciate. I used to have five dispensaries. Butt tenders were, you know, the, uh, the lifeline to our patients. But I mean, you can't put in your personal preferences, whatever it is to grandma Mary comes in to try to address her glaucoma or something like that. It's, right. uh, it, it's going to take some education from us. Yeah. It's, it's a good point though, that the bud tender is truly the choke point of information to the consumer. And I, I actually was surprised and frankly, very proud of the work that's been done at forefront with our mission dispensaries and the education that goes into our bud tender training programs and just standing in our retail stores and just, you know, eavesdropping on conversations they're having with customers and hearing the right types of questioning what are the, what are you looking? What problem are you looking to solve? How can I help you solve it? Not, yeah. you know, here's my favorite product. I love this vape. Try this, you know. And I've, you know, we've all heard the gamut. But I, I do think um, bud tender education is a really uh, is a real opportunity because if the yeah. bud tenders are educated, then they're much more likely to parrot that information to the patients, and that's where it starts. Yeah. Um, I, I also think that certain product categories lend themselves better to education than others. Like in edibles, as an example, we have a handful of edibles that are out and that are coming out that focus on minor cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And when you have a minor that you can showcase the, the effect of that minor and why that that's an important uh, tool for you and your personal toolkit and what you're trying to achieve, people get it. They're like, oh, th that's what CBG did for me. That's what CBN did for me. Now they think about the plant as, oh, I wonder if this has any of that in it. And so it opens up their mind to the fact that there's more than just THC. It's really hard to do that in flower where you can't, you can't always get a specific effect where you're like, did you feel the difference between that one and that one? Not always. It's a little bit more subtle and nuanced, or you have to have a more educated consumer. And I don't know. I, I love flower and I would prefer, I would much rather uh, smoke a, a high you know, a high active cannabinoid flower that tests at 16% THC than, yeah. you know, an infused pre-roll that tested at 32% or 34% because it was infused with, you know, shatter or something that yeah. was just there to get you high. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I was just on a show right before 
uh, we got on it. And I was telling them when I, when I cultivated, we had a cultivation facility. We made this Gorilla Glue that was somewhere between 14 and 16%, but it was so expressed with terpenes. And people were like, what is it testing? It was back in 2010, so we weren't testing a lot. But when we did, they couldn't believe it. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it's the whole plant. Everything is in it. It's fully expressed. You can smell it. You can see it. And it doesn't have to be that high uh, amount right. of THC. It's all the different and it, and it blows people's minds that a you know smoking sixteen percent flour can give you the same but still a totally different effect than smoking a thirty percent flour. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always I'm shocked at you know sixteen percent flour can be plenty if it's the right flour. Agreed. All right, let's let's have some fun. Uh, <laughs> sure. <but> I, <laughs> um. So if you can grab five albums and uh, for next year uh, just to listen to you can only listen to these five. Oh god what this is a be? bad question because i'm not a big music guy what what, <laughs> uh, what other categories you got in your jeopardy game <laughs> all right so please describe your first experience with cannabis let's try that first experience high school uh halloween night smoking out of a gatorade bottle uh, with a Bic pen as the stem and a little carb burned into the side of it. And it popped and crackled and probably came from Tijuana. That was my first experience. <laughs> and, and still I fell in love with the product. Well, how was that experience? Were you, did you enjoy it? Cause yeah, well, I think I've... Halloween is a pretty unique night to be walking <laughs> around the streets high in San Diego. I, I yeah, I, I must've thoroughly enjoyed it. Cause I didn't stop coming back for it after that. Um, I don't remember being paranoid. I, I think it was probably the fact that the weed was probably like 8% THC yeah. and that was perfect for a beginner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so not being a, a music guy, do you, do you go to any concerts at all? You know, I, um, most of the time my wife and I go to country concerts of all things. So yeah. Well, do you could, remember, do you remember like the very first concert you attended? The very first? Oh, that's embarrassing. I think the first concert I attended was Shania Twain. Uh, in San Diego at Coors Amphitheater when I was like 13 or 14. And that was when I fell in love with country music. First time I ever saw so many people in cowboy boots in San Diego. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There, there are definitely a lot of people uh, there like country music, surprisingly. So uh, do you remember the very first album that you bought? I think it, so when I was... 16 well when i was younger I, I was really into heavy metal for a period of time so i had a lot of like metallica megadeth a lot of those real metal albums early metal albums and then i remember distinctly i had i had a vol my parents volvo station wagon was my first car and i had one of those disc men that plugged into the tape deck that you, yeah. you know had the six second anti-skip and the only cd i had for the first six months of owning that car for whatever reason was Steve Miller band greatest hits 1974 to 1978. And so to this day, I know every word of every Steve Miller band song on that album and most of his other albums. And that, that was the start. Not <laughs> a bad one to have, man. No, it was great. Yeah. That, that was the type of music that my dad listened to. So it was, it was cool to bond with him over just classic rock in general. Cool. So um, what has cannabis meant in your life? So it's meant different things at different times. I think in, um, in college and as a young adult, it was a recreational tool that was probably better, better for me and everyone around me than alcohol. And I feel that way forever for everyone for that matter. Um, but it was also a tool to help me focus 
Um, not that I, I, I don't have ADD or I haven't been diagnosed with ADD, but um, I do feel like I have shiny object syndrome. And so as an engineering student, when I needed to sit down and crank through five hours of math problems, cannabis was an incredible tool. It took out all the noise. I could focus on one thing at a time and it, and it worked. Um, as a, as a young adult, when I was in management consulting and I was traveling Monday through Thursday out of the office on client sites all over the U S and then coming back home, you didn't have a lot of friends. So you spent a lot of time, you know, either with colleagues or hanging out in a hotel room by yourself. So I, I would rather be hanging out in a hotel room by myself, smoking a little bit of weed than, yeah. and not. And so it was, it was a persistent thing in my life at that time. And then as an adult, I think less of a, less as a consumer and just more as an entrepreneur, it gave me an opportunity to participate in something that's been really, really interesting and rewarding and, um, and a white space that doesn't exist in a lot of other industries. So it's given, it's given me professional opportunities as well. Cool. Like I said, I like to be at the bottom of a learning curve. So this, this industry provides no shortages of those learning curve every <laughs> single day, every day, man, there's no, there's no such thing as the same. I don't wake up every day, go to work and do the same thing. It's different sure every single new, day. New fire drills every day. Exactly. All right. Final bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. So I was a surfer. So I had surf posters all over the walls. And it was, I remember, because it fast forward, you know, 30 years and Island, uh, our office, our headquarters for the past six or seven years has been in the dive and surf surf shop uh, in Redondo Beach, California. The second floor was where Body Glove was headquartered. And so, um, Body Glove as an independent company was Body Glove and Diamond Surf were two of the first surf brands in the world and they were founded in the 50s. And so that was its that was the headquarters where the founders ran the shop out of. And it's full of surf memorabilia. And it has a lot of the same posters that I had on my walls as a kid, which was pretty crazy to go into work and see the same body glove poster that you had on your room 30 years prior. So yeah, it was uh surf racks on the wall, surf skate. I wasn't super big into traditional sports. So it was a lot. It was a very Southern California vibe. Not a lot of football or baseball. I mean, I played all those sports, but not a lot of posters or memorabilia. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't. I don't. I don't get a lot of that vibe from uh, people <laughs> that are in grew up in Southern California. Yeah. No. I, I, mean, I, I grew up in Philly, and I, I when I go to Rams games, they play the Eagles once a year. Usually, they didn't play this year. Uh, it's like. The, the Philly fans take over the stadium and it's hard, you know, it's like two thirds Eagle fans and one third Rams fans. And just not, <laughs> they don't know how to root. Yeah. San Diego is just the, I mean, not only did I go to a college that didn't have a football team, but San Diego is just a weird sports town. We had, you know, we had, had the Chargers for so many years, but they were never great. The Padres have always been kind of meh, but we'll see this season they're, they're looking <laughs> up. So it, it wasn't, uh, it was a lot more fun for, for me to, to hit the beach and, and do those kinds of things. Cause you know, not everybody has access to those. And I never took it for granted. That was one thing that I growing up with a dad who served and a grandfather who served. It's like, you, you don't understand, man, the rest of America doesn't get to do this. That's why they vacation here. So yeah. every single opportunity you should, you get, you should be in the water. And I definitely Super took that cool. part. Agreed. Well, Brandon, I want to thank you so much for joining. Where can people find out more about Forefront Ventures, uh, uh, your brands connect with the- Yeah. If you, if you just go to, um, 
uh, ForefrontVentures.com. You can find out about our brands. Like I said, we exist in California, Washington, Illinois, and Massachusetts. So in each one of those markets, we have we will have websites for all of our individual brands. In California, we have Island.co, which is where our Island brand lives. Uh, and then in Illinois and Massachusetts, we have our Mission Dispensary. So you can find all of our brands and products at Mission Dispensaries and at the Mission Dispensary website. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. it great to meet you, Len. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.